I was in the hospital yesterday in, in Hadassah, sitting outside a, 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 one of the rooms, and um, and there's a big sign on the wall. This light bulb was right, doing exactly. it. <laughs> and I actually turned to Susanna. I said to her, like, no, I'm, I'm so grateful for these, you know, for, you know, whatever his name Bill was. And, Bill, uh, Bill and Helen. From whatever, yeah. who've donated. They're like, you know, amazing that they've donated this stuff and that we're sitting here and taking advantage of this and they don't even know and I'm and I'm incredibly grateful to them and thank you to them I you know when push comes to shove I, I don't know whether they were doing it in order to have the sign on the wall or so but it, it's an amazing thing to donate money to a hospital that then keeps on living on the bequest and serving people and giving people great eye care I'm just interested in the fact that they gave so as long as their money wasn't ill-gotten if they were to come visit Hadassah exactly when you're sitting outside the room mm-hmm. Mm. Most definitely. Mm. They'll be kind of knowingly embracing mm. uh, a hierarchy at that moment mm. of you are beholden to me. Mm. No? Don't know. You hope that in some of these moments with these major funders that they also laugh. Do you know what I mean? There's like a, I hope that they say that to Brad too, you know. I hope they say like, like here's a million dollars and can you make sure there's a big plaque on the wall and, you know, do it in the name of my mother and, you know. I, I appear to be being a complete prat at this moment. And <laughs> now could you stop being sycophantic? That was my chavruta, my study partner and dear friend, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, director of the Beit Midrash of Kolot and creator and host of Padraj. Joel and I were discussing a Talmudic text that tries to help us sort through a good action that's done for, quote-unquote, the wrong reasons. The Talmud mentions rebuke, humility, and the study of Torah, all done out of ulterior motives. But ever since childhood, I've taken a keen interest in one particular iteration of this phenomenon, those acts of generosity in which we insist upon letting the world know loud and clear about just how freely we share our abundance by announcing who gave and how much. We have a lot of tour to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is from Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast that offers thought-provoking content along with a damn good theme song as well. In the episode, My Little Hundred Million, Gladwell tells the story of New Jersey native Hank Rowan, who in 1992 gave a modest gift of $100 million to the local Glassboro State College in order to establish an engineering school. His gift made headlines around the country and started a trend. According to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, as of right now, spring of 2016, we're up to 87 gifts of $100 million or more to higher education. So everyone followed Rowan's lead, except not really. Not really, because Rowan gave to no-name Glassboro, while most of the other mega-gifts went to well-known and, more importantly, well-endowed schools. And that's what gets Gladwell so peeved. Those of you who follow me on Twitter will know that I'm obsessed with this issue. After John Paulson gave his $400 million to Harvard in 2015, I had a kind of Twitter meltdown, sending tweet after tweet, including... It came down to helping the poor or giving the world's richest university $400 million it doesn't need. Wise choice, John. And then, if billionaires don't step up, Harvard will soon be down to its last $30 billion. 
Then when Phil Knight gave $400 million to Stanford, I got called up for comment by the New York Times. I said that Stanford was part of a crazy arms race and ought to cut its endowment in half and give the balance to schools that actually need the money. I understand the people who give money to those who need money. The people who give money to those who already have all the money they need? I don't understand that. What are they thinking? Gladwell's focus is on higher education, but his exploration raises a very important question in the world of philanthropy. When is philanthropy about truly solving a problem, and when is it instead about something else? Perhaps it's the optics of generosity. Perhaps it's the desire to be on a winning team and maybe have some of its luster rub off on the giver. Superstars are glamorous. Nobel Prize winners are glamorous. Regional universities in rural South Jersey and solid, capable midfielders are not. What people remember are the unbelievably beautiful goals. They may not realize that the seven maybe less glamorous passes that set up that eighth beautiful through ball were maybe arguably just as important, but they were much more mundane and they just involved simple movement to open spaces and and people don't adequately value that. Rowan, by contrast, offers a model of someone who's not only immune to that temptation, he's committed to the beauty of that no-name midfielder who makes one of many critical but unmemorable passes. You see, Rowan was courted by his alma mater, MIT. He explains to Gladwell, They were at the time trying to raise $750 million. Uh And uh, my little $100 wouldn't have made hardly any difference at all. Basically, he said MIT had the greatest engineering school, bar none. He said it was the best education he could ever imagine. And he said, I'm sure they would do good things with my money. They'd build a building or do something positive. But he said it wouldn't make the difference that it's going to make down here. He said, I enjoy making a difference in this world. At the beginning of his portrait of Rowan, Gladwell interviews Rowan's daughter, Jenny Smith. I'd like to suggest that Rowan's style of giving went hand in hand with his choice of vehicles. He was a Nash Rambler guy in the early days, and he poo-pooed Mercedes because Mercedes wasn't one of our customers. Um, What what did he drive sort of near the near? uh, He drove... Oldsmobiles and Buicks, and finally the company here insisted he drive a Lincoln. He drove it into the ground just about. Oh, it had a Cadillac once, but he towed his boats with that, too, because it had a bigger engine, you know. <laughs> None of this drive around and wave at people stuff. Rowan was not merely a philanthropist who focused on great return on investment. He was stubbornly, and I would add inspiringly, committed to a world in which what matters is substance and not shine. Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artsen holds the Abner and Roslin Goldstein Dean's Chair of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, and he is the Vice President of the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. And on top of that, he's a member of the philosophy department, and he is particularly interested in the areas of theology, ethics, and the integration of science and religion. If not for that last part, I would have said that we get along very, very well. Uh, and he is the dean of the Zacharias Frankel School uh, a College in Potsdam, Germany, which ordains conservative rabbis for Europe. In addition to those things, Brad is a dear, dear friend and a treasured scholar and colleague 
Brad, it is a pleasure to have you here on Podrush. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Leon. I'm happy to be with you. So I want to start by asking you just to share with us what your initial reactions were to Malcolm Gladwell's My Little Hundred Million. I thought that it was a bit self-serving and a bit reductionist. I, I, did, I don't buy his arguments. Look, so what he's making the claim is that if you give to successful, well-endowed institutions, you're only going to make a small marginal difference. But if you give to an unknown institution that's barely scraping by, then you can really change lives. And what he's saying is half true. It is certainly true that less well-known institutions that have a tighter budget your gift will be proportionally that much more significant. But where I think he's wrong is by turning it into a dichotomy of either this or that. So let's use his example. He talks about you give a hundred million dollars to Harvard. Okay, so they'll just build another building or something, but it's no big deal. Except the hundred million dollars that goes to Harvard is touching Harvard students. So you're picking some of the top people with the greatest potential all around North America and the world, and you're giving them greater tools to be able to heighten their training. Does he really want to say that a thousand graduates of Harvard University and a thousand graduates of a community college somewhere that it doesn't matter to help the Harvard people? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying you shouldn't give to the community college, and I'm not saying that Everyone who goes to Harvard makes a huge difference, and none of the people who go to a community college make a big, that is not true either. I don't want to dichotomize it in the other direction. But there is something self-serving about saying the only good way to give your money is the way I give my money. Gladwell, you know, he has this concept of um, strong link and weak link, and part of what he's trying to argue is that that there is a way in which we are lured into strong linking. We like to see the star. Um, we like to see the one person who's going to serve, uh, who's going to make the goal or make the basket in the last uh, second of the game. And what that leads to is a kind of tunnel vision where it's, it's, it's not to say, I mean, which you didn't say that only the people who graduated from elite Ivy League institutions are the ones who make the contribution, but it's to underestimate how critical all of the things that led up to all of the quote unquote weak links are uh, to the entirety of the success of the overall story. And of course, the overall story for Gladwell and for us is the entirety of what's going on in, in the society, in this particular case in the United States. Great. And that I agree with completely. I think that's a, a lovely drosh on Gladwell. And, and I like your drosh. I accept your friendly amendment. Look, the, the unsung heroes are the, the institutions that we don't think of as famous because the vast majority of people get their professional training and their development and their education at those places. And they are absolutely vital to the well-being of our society, not just the glittery big name places. In that sense, he's absolutely right. But it is also true that concentrating on greatness can also raise the bar. So all my only objection is turning it into everyone should do it my way, which is the un 
modified version of Gladwell. Let's just call that Gladwell. Um, and then the Dow version of Gladwell is don't forget those other places too. I work in one of those other places. Look, American Jewish community has produced amazing rabbis, educators, undergraduates. We've done remarkable adult education, um, both recently and throughout our history. And we're not exactly a world famous institution. So far be it for me to argue against supporting such places. I know the difference that they can make that we can make. There's a question about the act of giving, what motivates the act of giving, um, what perhaps sometimes sullies the act of giving, and whether we can extricate the benefit and the good aspect of someone's act of generosity from some of the negative stuff that, that might be the motivating factor and, and which might have brought someone to the table, so to speak. So here's what I want to, um, the way that I, that I think that Gladwell at least brings it to our doorstep as a subject that we need to address. I think that part of what he says here is that what Hank Rowan offers us as a model for philanthropy is someone who, when he looks to share his wealth and create opportunities for other people, he does it in a way which is not self-aggrandizing to him. Therefore, he's looking to be effective as a giver, and he's very uninterested in whether he's going to be on the winning team, so to speak, right? Whether he's going to have a plaque at uh, MIT or Harvard. And conversely, um, what we learn is that lots of times philanthropists don't work in that way. And because they don't work in that way, and because they're motivated, they might be motivated, their act of giving and generosity might be motivated by the desire to rub elbows with that star uh, or have their plaque on that illustrious uh, campus, then, then their giving might be, might be a little bit misguided. I want to say as a fundraiser, Anyone who's listening to this, who has a lot of money to give and has mixed motives for doing it, should call me, bartson at aju.edu. I will happily take your gift. Wait a second, I need their gift more than you do. one of my favorite Talmudic stories. It's in Masechet Yoma, which is the tractate about the sacrifice for Yom Kippur. There's a story where the rabbis pray to be able to tie up the evil inclination, the, the Yetzer Hara, which is the source of all of our greed and our ego and all of our so-called lower motives. Um, and they, they successfully bind it uh, and they discover that nothing productive happens no children are born, no eggs are laid, no artwork is created, and no institutions are funded, right? Because it turned, and, and they actually go back to God and plead, could we please release the yet, so we realize we need it. Second thing I want to say, there are ancient synagogues throughout the land of Israel where there are plaques that list I so-and-so funded this Beit Knesset, right? That is a, an ancient and proven method for helping people do their best. You know, the level of charity giving in the United States is far higher 
than it is in other parts of the world, in part because we give people plaques, we've mastered the PR part of it, and we give people tax credits, right? So there are policies designed to scoop up people's best impulses, even when they aren't pure. I think we should worry less about the motive and more about the outcome. So all you all you ambivalent donors out there who are doing it for desperate ego reasons, you come to me. I think that what Gladwell manages to do successfully is to bring those two things together, which is to say it could be that because of ego, philanthropists or generous people might find themselves thinking, quote unquote, ineffectively about how best to share their wealth. That is to say, it could be that American Jewish University will miss out on some very, very good-hearted and generous person because he or she wants not to have a plaque at AJU, but rather to have a, a plaque a little bit north of you at Stanford because they want to be on the quote-unquote winning team. And I think that what, what Gladwell is saying is that there's a danger, which is that the ego can lead us to a bad place. And and here I would I would actually, I want to press you, right? I, I mean, you brought, you mentioned the text uh, of Yoma in Babylonian Talmud. And, and I want to ask, let, let's go a little bit down that alley, right? Why is it still called the evil inclination. The text doesn't abandon labeling it as the evil inclination. It doesn't some, somehow get redeemed and, and, and rebranded, so to speak, as, oh, no, it's actually the good inclination. Um, you just didn't understand. It's still, still labeled evil inclination. It's just that we're stuck with it, and that's somehow integral to the world as it exists, and we can complain about it, but it's there. Which means, I think, Kodorov, that we aren't going to get rid of the evil inclination, as you say. And that means efforts that are based on transcending or ignoring the evil inclination are doomed to failure. The best we can hope for is to channel it. Can we harness the evil inclination for constructive purposes mm. and thereby transmute it into a positive impact in the world. I read your latest book. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. Um, and it has your name on the front cover, right? That had to have given you pleasure. And, and I would assume that part of your putting it out there is the message, but part of it is the joy of being a messenger. That isn't going to go away. Right? So the question is, can we use that? If that inspires you to write yet another book, then that's a good thing. And so here too, I think it's, we're putting our energy in the wrong area because yes, of course, Gladwell can come up with the negative version of giving to the big splashy place. And if you want, I'll come up with the negative version of giving to the podunk place. Right? We can all do that in both directions. That's not the question we have. The question is, there are indeed people who give to UCLA and not to American Jewish University. Stanford, not so much. Um, but, but that happens. Right? But there are also people in the other direction whose commitment to the Jewish community is such that they make their generosity through AJU and not through UCLA because the pond they're interested in making a splash in is our pond. 
I, I will say before asking the question, I will be honest about the motivating factors behind this question. Number one is I'll, I will root this question again in the text that you brought. It tells the story of, of the evil inclination and the desire to tie it, to get rid of it. Uh, and, and once God says basically, okay, well, if, if, you, if you're going to do that, then our uh, creativity and, and sexual relations and all of these things, which are a part of the world, are now going to uh, fall by the wayside. Um, so what, what they decide to do is they decide to gouge out its eyes and to try to somehow curtail its power. So and 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 um, and I'm going to now share a personal story, which which when we were preparing for this conversation, I I realized was just sitting below the surface because I hadn't thought about it for years and years. But I want to bring it into this question that I'm throwing at you. I remember as a child sitting in the synagogue at the conservative synagogue that I grew up in in Houston, Texas, with my with my parents and and in Yom Kippur, in the middle of Yom Kippur, they have the Israel they had, I don't know what happens now, the Israel bonds drive. Uh, and this this was they still do. Okay, so this was, you know, this was before I decided to make Aliyah. So, so I really had no commitment uh, to, to making sure that, you know, there was as much money as possible in Israel. And there were like cards on every seat and people would fold, you know, because it was quote unquote halachic. So people don't actually like write down, they would just fold down the tab, which indicated how big of a donation they were giving. And then, and then someone would, would say out loud the name uh, and the donation of each person. And I remember as a child, I think I was in elementary school, just being horrified. And I remember being horrified because I had, uh, b- because I understood even then that, that, um, that there was this show going on that felt very, very, it felt very unfair. Uh, and it felt, it, it felt like it was mixing generosity with aggrandizement and um, good motives with bad motives. And so I guess what I'm asking um, as someone who raises money, right, what would be for you the points at which you would say, okay, you know, I've gouged its eyes out, but it's still the evil inclination and I don't want it here. Or it is more effective as a way of of raising money, but I'm not going to do it. All right. So first, Leon, I'm glad you raised that subject. I do want to point out, I'm looking at your bond donation record, and since making Aliyah, your donations to Israel bonds has gone way, way down. That's because I don't have any money, Brad. Correct. You should have thought about that. So when they don't call out the names, you know what happens? They end up collecting half the amount. Right. And you... Puritan Wiener Dow, you're the one who wants to tell me which motivations are the good motivations and which are the bad motivations. Those were your exact words. Mm-hmm. You know which motives are good and which are bad. And you're also assuming that making a significant donation with what you're calling bad motives mixed in with good motives somehow cheapens the gift. And I'd like to speak to the child, Leon. And I'd like to say to you, little twerp. (laughs) This is great. I'm getting therapy, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And chastisement all at once. (laughs) You know, your privilege, your education, your life, the roads that were paid, like all of that stuff 
was given with mixed motives that are impossible to separate out. You can't do it. And if you only were to accept gifts based on pure motives, like, are you really clear that you only wrote the book for good motives? That you married your wives only for good motives? Like, that you made Aliyah only for good motives? Like, I just think we can't, it, it's an impossible right. and mental task. Right. So what so, I'd like to say is whatever brings you to a good place, I'm going to be grateful for and work with. You're being very halachic and deciding that what is ultimately going to determine the value of an act is the act itself and intentions, right? In other words, we're, we are not... Well, I'm willing to say that it is better to perform a good act with noble intention. But next on the rung okay, is good. performing the good act with mixed intention. Is there for you a line where you would say, you know what, I'd rather not. Thank you very, very much, but I'd not. Yes, there is. Okay, so let's can we can we spend one and a half two minutes, you know, unpacking that? What would what would yes, what and would then I that? need to pa- unpack in the other direction for a minute. Great. So yes, let's imagine there's someone whose reputation is based on degradation and cruelty. Mm. They've made a fortune by being outrageously racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever, you know. I would not want their name on my building. Okay, so that that but that's because that's because the money that's because the money that they make is is sullied. It's not that the act of generosity is sullied. It's that that the money that 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 was Yeah, because I don't think you can tweak out the act. I think what you can say is the money would actually by prominently placing us with their name. Uh-huh. We end up harming the institution. But let me tell you a story. There's a local rabbi, wonderful rabbi, Eli Shofet, mm-hmm. who, um, great scholar, great tzaddik, whose father was an Orthodox rabbi. And once a year, one of the gangsters of Chicago, Jewish gangster, would come the day before Yom Kippur and bring him a bag of, of bills of American catch. And little Eli said to his father, Abba, how can you take his money? Mm. He's a criminal. Mm. He's a crook. And his father said to him, and Eli tells this story with tears in his eyes, you know, it's true that all year long he's a crook. But on the day before Yom Kippur, he is his mother's son. And he remembers who he's called to be and he tries to do some kind of atonement Mm. and this is his atonement and that for you is and i'm being serious now that for you is like how should i say it like that that is that is for you a noble act to accept that generosity or that 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 act of donation because not only are you now getting the money but you're even allowing him a kind of tikkun, a kind of tshuva of sorts? You are strengthening his yetzer tov. So why not? Why is that not the same about the same person? Why? So then why the person who's homophobic or racist? 
if he had come, wait, if he had come and said, name the institution after me, then I think he would have had to say no. Mm. I won't take your money. But he did it. He did it anonymously, and that lifted it up. But can you not also imagine, let's turn this around, can you not imagine someone who for an unfiltered Yetzer Tov ends up creating tremendous harm to an institution? You can do hideous bad things with the purest of motives, right? It, it is said um, by a, a philosopher of Jewish law that in hell, all of the rules are strictly enforced, hmm. right? Sometimes the wisest thing to do is to just be a realist and wink and look away. So I think that's where Gladwell and I separate on this issue is he's wanting to make it simple. He's wanting to make it so we can look up on a chart and know what to do. And I don't think life comes that way. There is such a thing as a chatat. Sinners bring offerings, not just tzaddik. And the temple was predicated on accepting the gifts of sinners, including monetary contributions, as a way of their seeking atonement. Right. So I don't know whether this is my playing an unfair card, but I think I'm rabbinic and not biblical, by which I mean I am strongly in favor of expiation taking place through tshuva, through the act of changing one's actions, and not through bringing a gift. <laughs> that is to say, I think that the model of chatat, the model of bringing a gift is, okay, well, I can't really change the way I am, right? My evil inclination gets the better of me um, nine and a half times out of 10. And so, you know what? Erev Yom Kippur, like your friend Eli Shochet, 364 days a year, I'm going to knowingly sin and continue to do so. But you know what? I can muster the ability one day a year to come and bring a gift. And, and, and if I do it, then that gives me a feeling of having um, somehow redeemed myself and my life and the way that I lived my life during the rest of the year. Um, I think what that gangster was doing was saying there is a piece of him that regrets his life that regrets his choice. He's not able to change the choice. He's not mm -hmm. able to undo what mm -hmm. he did. Mm -hmm. But what he is able to do is say, there's a piece of my heart that sees it, that regrets it, mm. that, that gestures towards Kapara. Mm. And it was the Rav's role to strengthen that piece of his heart, whether it led to anything or not. Um, you set the bar high for me. Uh, my dear friend, Brad, I wish that I could uh, both successfully fundraise and uh, successfully believe in, in the holiness of that act and, and, and to believe in it. In, and I'm being sincere here. I, obviously, you're not playing a game. You, you really, really believe that act of generosity by accepting and allowing for that act of generosity. We're not only taking that person's money and, and using it well, we're somehow amplifying that person's uh, yetzer tov, their, their, their positive inclination. So Leon, if I, could, if I could say, I tell my students all the time that rabbinic fundraising involves really talented people with really good values. Because the answer to Gladwell is not that they 
should stop giving to MIT or Harvard or even that place in Palo Alto you mentioned. <laughs> it's that they could build another home. They could get another private jet. They could buy a fancy watch that costs more than your home and my home put together. Mm -hmm. right? So when they come saying we wanna do something to make education better, scientific research better, if the price of that is a is their name on a building, it, for me, I'm sorry. It's just, that's not complicated. Fantastic. My dear friend, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artsen, thank you very, very much for being here. And thanks for sharing your Torah and your wisdom. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Joanne Walmerantz, guest of our Hypertech segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet Dana Sendermula, director of the Israel Office of Momentum and a Kolot alumna. We chatted so that I could learn about her and how learning at Kolot has impacted her. Thank you, Leon, for having me, and hi, everyone, for tuning in and listening. In the last, I would say, almost 15 years, I've been a Jewish professional. I have a strong passion for the Jewish people, you know, seeking our identity and looking to see in many, many deep, deep ways on how we can influence the Jewish people long term. In the last seven years, I've dedicated my time and my energy to the Momentum Global Movement that uh, seeks to inspire Jewish women to make a difference in generations to come in the Jewish people, connecting them to their own Jewish identity, to the Jewish people, and to the state of Israel. Um, I'm also very active with Zikaron Basalon. It's an incredible uh, phenomena in Israeli society and now globally around the world that is activated on mostly Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel and also on the Global Day. And it brings people together in conversation about the past, the present and the future. So I, I was privileged enough to be a part of the founders of this incredible movement. And today I'm a part of the board of Zikaron Basalon and it's a meaningful part of my life. Dana, can you share with us either a moment during your time of learning at Kolot that stayed with you or more broadly, the way that the learning influenced you and perhaps what you do? Kolot has really been a key in shaping the Jewish professional that I am today. I had such an honor to learn with Tidhar Gutman, who was my, in many ways, my, my Jewish mentor coming into this world. As a young woman at the time who was never exposed to Jewish learning, Kolot was really my first gateway in that allowed me to look at text and in a way that wasn't pressured or overwhelming or in many ways condescending, allowed me to address these texts and make them my own. And I was taught to believe that I also have a voice and that every voice matters. In many ways, it really influenced the way that I address texts today, that I allow others through our work with Momentum here in Israel to access these um, opportunities as well. So I'm very, very, thankful to Kolot for giving me this tool that is now serving many others. Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.net. And now, 
back to our episode. I would like to welcome to Padrash, Joanne Walmerans, who is uh, joining us. Joanne is an uh, early childhood educator at Stephen S. Wise School in Los Angeles. And Joanne brings, oh, 20 plus years, right, of uh, uh, educational experience. And she combines uh, work in the classroom as a Jewish educator, as well as bringing in a discipline, uh, fine art. Uh, which he brings into the classroom as well. Joanne, it is a pleasure to have you. Thank you very, very much for being here with us. Thank you, Leanna. It's my pleasure. Here's the question. Here's, here's what I'm hoping you can uh, shed light on. Uh, we are struggling in this episode with the question, the challenge of how does one come to a place of uh, generosity from an internal place, that is to say, um, when we when we share, lots of times we we share our wealth or our resources because we're told to, or because we want someone to see that we're sharing them, uh, or because we're told that it's the right thing to do, um, or because we're somehow aggrandized by that act of giving. And so I thought, what better place to start than with uh, the early stages in life, the children when we're first trying to get them to develop and foster, or maybe they already have it, I don't know, uh, an innate sense of, uh, of giving and sharing. So I wanted to ask, how do you educate a young child to an act of generosity? The act of generosity is something that children learn through model, modeling. If they're around people who are generous and do it naturally, the children mm -hmm. will see this and they will start to respond. Children really want to please us. So when they see these, these acts and they see that it brings joy, they will then follow suit. It's all about teaching children empathy and letting them know where they are in the world compared to where other people are. Pointing it out, making them aware, talking about it, giving praise when they do things that are intrinsic and when they're giving freely from their hearts. Things that we give children to give at school have no monetary value. Children that are giving their time, that is something generous. Um, you know, I know that in Judaism, children are always taught, oh, you have to give sadaka. you know, you have to give sadaka. Well, giving your child money to bring to school every day, it has no monetary value. It's a coin, whether you give them five cents or $20, it's, 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 it means nothing to them. But giving of themselves is something incredibly generous that, it has no monetary value, but it's giving of who you are. And I think that um, modeling for children and showing that is so incredibly important because they learn about the act of generosity and not about giving things because mm. things are so easy to just give away when you have a lot of them. So I'm, I'm thinking that they have time with a certain toy, right? Um, or time with a certain object that they don't um, it might not be a function of literally giving it to someone else on a permanent basis, but it might be sharing playtime with the object. Um, how does that play itself out? Children actually possess something before hmm. they can let it go. They have to feel like it's theirs hmm. until they can let it go. It's the same as if you got a brand new car, would you want to share it with me the same day? No, no, no. You need, to, you need to have it to yourself for a while. And when you're kind of used to it and you feel like it's mine, I'll share it if you give it back. I don't think that children should be forced to share. I feel that children will share when they're ready 
And I don't think it, it teaches them anything to make them share. I think that you can talk to children and encourage them and tell them, you know, you've had this for five minutes and, you know, Susan over here has really been waiting. Do you see that she's waiting and talk them through it? I think they, they can be understanding there. Then when they see the joy that they, that the other person gets, they receive that feeling of generosity and how, how good it feels. Also, it's up to the educated to praise and to comment what you see. Wow, that was so nice of you. You shared with her. She was waiting so long and she was so frustrated. And you really had that toy for five minutes and now you're willing to pass it along. Mm. I'm so proud of you. Um, so it's kind of like talking them through the situation. I think that the more they practice giving, they will intrinsically start loving the feeling that they're getting. And they will... They will realize that it actually gives them joy and it feels good to make somebody happy and it will happen naturally. I was thinking as you were talking that surely as you are educating different children in the classroom, you see that each of them has uh, an additional, an, an, uh, um, each of them has a different initial propensity to share or not to share. Are there times actually when you find yourself trying to encourage a child not to give too much, like where there are certain children who, how should I say it? They are so attached to the feeling that they get by giving to someone else that they are too quick to let go of, of, of their toy. Does that ever happen? Not very often. No. Mm. <laughs> children know what they want and they, and they know how much time they need with something. I feel that if a child is giving something up all the time because somebody's asking, we need to empower that child and ask them, are you done with it? Do you feel like you've had enough time with that toy? Because, you know, the, the pressure, it, it's not teaching them anything. They're just giving it away and, and they're not developing who they are and their self-esteem. So that would be something where I would jump in really quickly and say, are you done with it? Are you sure you're okay passing it along? You don't have to be done with it. It's really interesting to see that families of children that where the parents give a lot, the children tend to be very generous because they see it. You know, like I say, they model for them. Um, whereas, you know, I, I've worked in places where children don't come from such good social economic backgrounds. And in that case, it, it can be hard for parents to, to give more freely. And I feel that I see that the children struggle a little bit with it. That interests me, kind of the juxtaposition between doing the work that you do, the educational work that you do with children that come from backgrounds where they have what they need and plenty of it, and experience you've had working with children who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. So how does your work as an educator differ, uh, or how did it differ when you were working with less privileged populations? What would you do there? in order to kind of bring them to uh, a place of generosity where you didn't have the kind of modeling from the outside, which was going to help amplify what you were trying to get across? Well, then it would be a situation where we would create situations where the children could be generous in a way that didn't really cost much. Mm -hmm. They would be making cards for 
for the crossing guards or they would be making thank you gratitude cards for the for the ladies in the kitchen who were making their lunch mm-hmm. it would really come from their hearts and they would create something it didn't have to be a thing it could just be a song it could be a thank you it could be a card but it was something that came from within and i always felt that those kinds of generous gifts that they would give was so much more powerful because they all had something to say and they all gave and they really felt it. When you were describing you before, I kind of had an image of a child seeing the receiving on, on the other end the um, and the happiness that comes with that. And somehow that um, influencing the child at that very moment and and being something that has some kind of staying power. So what is it that you from the outside, right? There's the power of that interaction itself, right? In other words, if I'm a little child and I let someone else share or whatever it is, then there is that feedback that I'm getting from that other child. Is there anything that you can do as an educator to help facilitate that or to help amplify the impact that that moment has or to give it some kind of staying power. No, no, absolutely. As a, um, an early childhood educator, these little things that come up, you grab them and you hang on to them and you document them and you bring them up. And every day, hopefully in your closing circle or your morning circle, you will remind the children, wow, you know what we did today? We made somebody so happy. We did a, a really good act of generosity. We did a mitzvah. As an educator, I, do, I document those things. I take pictures. I write down the words. We make it visible in the classroom because it's a big deal. And when they go back and they see the images and the words, even if they can't read them, they'll ask us to read them. They will remember them. So we'll create a kind of like a memory book or a documentation or something where the children can go back and witness it anytime they want to so that they're revisiting. And every time they revisit, they remember the memory. I'm going to put my cards on the table as someone who has an allergy to like kind of plaques and stuff like that. I'm, I'm now going to jump to adult generosity, right? Uh-huh. So as you were describing that, I was thinking, well, you know, Leon, you need to just let go. I'm, I mean, you know, learn from Joanne. This is little children need it and big children need it, you know, and they need to be reminded of that act of generosity. So just like, you know, she needs to um, help them along in, in, you know, the Friday circle and remind them before they go home for Shabbat about the generous activities that they did during the week. So too, adults need to kind of reminders and markers of their generosity. That was me talking to myself. And I guess what I'm doing right now is asking you is, do you think that that's true? In other words, do you think that it's true that basically we're just big children walking around who are in need, who are in need of the exact same things? Or is there some aspiration that we can or should have where we turn some corner, where somehow that becomes internalized in such a way that we shouldn't need those documentations and those external uh, reminders and affirmations? I think in a perfect world, I think that if we are giving generosity from our hearts and from our spirits, we shouldn't need any plaques, but I think it's human nature it's kind of sad that we are at a place where we can't just say they need, we have access, Hmm. let's give. Hmm. I feel that little children do need that because they need to be reminded and that's how they learn. 
or every time you remind them that new little synapses are created in their brains where they remember things. But as adults, we, we're, we've been there, we've done that. And it would be so wonderful if we could give without looking for anything back. And it, it's almost become a competition, unfortunately. And it's really sad, but I think that's just kind of human nature. I'm guessing that there are times that, you know, given your, your acumen and your experience as an early childhood educator, that there are times when you see child A giving and child B giving, and one of them you can see is more from the heart or less effortful, however you want to say it, than, right. than the other. And so is there anything that you can do to help effectuate a change, to help kind of the place from which that giving is taking place? Or is it you have to let go and that person has to do their work? I mean, I, I think you kind of have to let it go. But I, I also think that the affirmation is really important. And, and with children, you can be honest and you can say, wow, that was hard for you to give. I saw that, that was hard for you, but I'm so proud that you were able to come through that and you did it. And how did it make you feel? Because with children, whatever their act is, there's always a feeling behind it. Sometimes they're unsure. Sometimes they're not happy. Sometimes they are. But there's not always a word that goes with those feelings. So if you're there to talk to them about it, to praise them, uh, to talk about empathy, to talk about how generous they were and how sometimes things are really hard to do, but you did the right thing. I think that children understand pretty well when you when you break it down for them and, and you explain to them, yes, I saw it was hard. You looked frustrated, but you did it. How do you feel now? Are you okay with it? Was that all right for you? Do you think you could do it again? No, I can't do it again. All right. Well, maybe next time you'll try and see. And if it doesn't work, then we'll keep trying. Hmm. Well, they are so honest and they're just so wonderful. And, um, you know, I really feel they keep you young and hmm. we can learn so much from them if we just stand back and, and listen. Beautiful. Joanne Romorans, thank you very, very much for being with us. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure. I recall one of my teachers, Walter Hertzberg, mentioning being in a synagogue, lifting up his glance, and noticing that on the ceiling fan, the ceiling fan, there was a plaque with the name of a donor on one of its blades. Now I'll admit, I'm originally from Houston and I don't mind sweltering heat, but that's not the reason I find this image so disturbing. It's not that I'm interested in raising a community-wide discussion about the world of Jewish philanthropy, though that sure is in order. Nor am I trying to work through my numerous failed attempts to raise funds for causes I'm involved in, though I do need to come to terms with that. No, in keeping with the theme of this season, Alma de Shikra, This Lying World, I'm troubled by the gap, the abyss even, that separates how we see these acts of giving from the outside and their internal workings. My dear friend Brad Artson calls me Puritan Wiener Dow for wanting to eliminate this gap, and I guess I could add to that the terms adolescent or naive. In Jewish terms, I'd be labeled Kapdan, or Beit Shammai. Shammai, that great scrooge of the halacha that Jewish law rejects in favor of Hillel, the one with the pleasant demeanor 
in great rabbinic manner. I said with sincerity to Brad that his Beit Hillel ability to accept the mixed motivations of the donor truly inspires me, and not because he's able to raise more money that way. It's because he really wants to lift their intentions to a higher level. But I keep hearing Joanne Walmerantz in my head, talking about the kind of giving that comes from within, whether it's the children from underprivileged populations that ride a card, or the more privileged child who shares a truck. Joanne taught me something significant when she said that we have to really possess something before we can let it go. And I suspect that when we share our wealth, but only if there's a plaque attached that bears our name, we haven't quite managed to let go. I don't mean to suggest that letting go is easy. Lord knows we hold on tight to so many things, possessions and money chief amongst them. But at those moments when we try to let go, but don't quite succeed, I'd at least like for us to heed the advice of Rabbi Joel Levy and admit it, getting in a good chuckle at the partial nature of our success. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wienerdow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson and Joanne Walmerenz, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman and Aaron Harris for their masterful sound editing, to my chevruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, and the willingness to call the generous bloke who donated the hospital room at Hadassah a twat, and to Michael Goel Samir for the original music. Please visit our website at www.podrash.org where you'll find links to the original episode of Revisionist History and to Joel's and my extended chavruta, along with the texts that we reference. You can also find all these links in the episode notes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. I don't know if it helps, but I'm supposed to say that. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. We'll be back next week with Episode 5, Fake It Till You Feel It. Thanks for joining us.